news, the beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. Before we kick off today's episode, we'd like to give you a taste of what you can expect from our January virtual retreat. Here are excerpts of interviews that I've done with Lisa Cron of Story Genius and Courtney Mom of Before and After the Book Deal. These are writing professionals at the top of their game, which is exactly why we invited them to speak at the retreat. Today, I really want to focus on the craft of writing and who better to speak to than you, Lisa. So let's dive in. Why don't you tell us what the single biggest mistake is that writers make? The biggest mistake that writers make is that they think that the story is about the plot. And they think that if they come up with a plot, if they come up with something really rip-roaring that is objectively, or seems to them anyway, objectively dramatic, and then they start writing and they write really beautiful, lovely, luscious sentences they will have a story. And that is 100% not how it works. I think that is why they say that out of 100 people who sit down to write a first draft, that's 100 people just to write a first draft, only three people will make it to the end of just that first draft. And then of those people, now imagine if you finish the first draft and then fully know that now you go back and you're going to do some rewriting and you're going to really get it ready to go. So of the people who then go back, do some rewriting and decide, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to take this out into the world. I'm going to, I'm going to query an agent. 
the number out there is what they say is, is that agents reject 96% of the manuscripts that are submitted. I personally believe having been, having been an agent and having read manuscripts for more decades than I want to admit to being alive. And I'm talking to my own agent about that. I think that number is low. I would put it at more like 98%. And that means now that of those three people who finished, well, let's imagine that two are going to get to the place, you know, where they're finally going to send it out to somebody. And that means that of those, of those two people, (laughs) it's like 98% of them are going to get rejected, which means like what's left an arm, maybe it's going to get, you know, get accepted. And if you think, okay, well, forget it. I'm not going to go the traditional route because, you know, agents and editors are meanies and, you know, they don't know anything. And I'm just going to get it out there and I'm going to self-publish it. And the truth is most self-published books sell at most a hundred, 150 copies. And let's face it, most of those are to family and friends <laughs> who say they read it and loved it, but you never really know. The thing is, writing's hard. It's re- it is hard. It's a hard thing to do. And anyone who tells you it's easy is trying to sell you something. It is not an easy thing to do. Writers write because they have to. They don't write because I've got to get words on a page. They write because they have something to tell. They have a point they want to make. They have something they want to take out into the world. And that is really what keeps them going. But figuring out what that is and what that point is and what that story is and creating it before you, long before you get to page one, is the thing that then creates those manuscripts that people really do want to read. Tell us a bit more about the handbook before and after the book deal. I just think it's an amazing resource for writers. I like the word handbook because it really is something I was hoping that people would hold in their hands, hold close to their desk where they're working on whatever it is they're working on. I wanted to write a book not just for people who want to you know, see their name in lights or have, have a book on a bookshelf, but also the people who had a book come out and are just feeling completely destabilized and disorientated between what they thought the experience would be and then what it actually became. I find, again, in, in America especially, this focus on the MFA has left us oversaturated with resources that teach us how to write better and tell us if you take enough classes, invest enough in summer writer workshops, whatever, hire an outside editor, you'll get a book deal. But then there's no resources. There's nothing that tells us how to behave, what to expect, what not to expect when we actually do get that book deal, when the dream is realized. So I wanted to write the book that quite literally will guide you. I mean, I find it pretty darn exhaustive, the book. Like I really tried to go through every single point in this choose your own adventure of of publishing a book from everything that can happen you know you're with a micro press all the way up to you do get the million dollar book deal you get the movie deal all the things that can happen along the way how to protect yourself how to educate yourself and of course we have interviews with almost 200 publishing professionals it's not like a memoir <laughs> or something i bring in the you know the big guns not just editors and agents and other writers but foreign scouts film scouts voiceover narrators translators, copy editors, the editorial assistants who have been dying to tell writers what makes them impossible to work with. You know, we hear from a lot of different people. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another Books with Hook segment. Today, we have a guest agent who's joining us, which is very, very exciting. So welcome to Veronica Park from Fuse Literary. 
She has been reading the queries that you've submitted, not to Carly and Cece, but to an agent who specializes in a different genre. So welcome, Veronica. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Yeah, absolutely. So we don't do chit chat on this podcast. We dive right in. So can you begin with that first query letter? Absolutely, I can. Um, Okay, so I am going to just read the whole thing as though I was reading it as myself as an agent, because that's how I do this. So dear Carly, Cece, Bianca, and V, I wait every week with bated breath for the release of the next episode of The Shit No One Tells You About Writing, starting off with a compliment, excellent. Your discussions about craft, queries, and everything in between have been invaluable to me over the past year. I am excited and a bit terrified to present to you my debut novel for the Books with Hooks segment. Title Redacted is an own voices YA gothic fantasy novel complete at 82,000 words. My manuscript combines the Faustian backdrop of V.E. Schwab's The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue with the small town atmosphere of Taylor Swift's recently re-recorded Fearless. It would fit well on a bookshelf next to Tori Bolivano's The Devil Makes Three. Sorry, it's Tori Bovolino. I was going to get that wrong. Uh, new paragraph. 18-year-old people pleaser Kit Morgan wants out out of her community service, out of everyone's expectations, and out of her backwater Minnesota town. Unfortunately, she's paralyzed by fear, so she escapes into music and media instead of actively doing anything. When a charming bluesman approaches her while she's streaming his decades-old posthumous album, curiosity overpowers her instinct to flee. He offers her a deal while neglecting to mention what he wants in return to take away her fear. She accepts so she can live for herself instead of others. All he leaves behind is a mark etched into her skin. I'm interested. New paragraph. Between the mark, his parting words, and her nightmares, Kit suspects that something is amiss. She enlists supernatural enthusiast and social outcast Jason to help her uncover the truth without telling him the full story. They discover that the symbol belongs to a demon that intends to inhabit her corpse. Yes, like he does the bluesmans. <laughs> now they have to figure out how to renege on her deal or she'll die before high school graduation. Final paragraph. Like Kit, I am a black woman that grew up in the American Midwest. I am a graduate of Princeton University, where I majored in redacted. When I'm not working in design in Toronto, I wrangle a rambunctious toddler. On some days, I even get to sleep. Thank you for your time and consideration. Best regards, name redacted. And at the bottom of this query, there's also a manuscript content warning for murder, pressure to have sex, attempted sexual assault, and mention of suicide. Awesome. Wow. So that was that was quite an intriguing query letter. What was your take on it? I have a lot of takes on this. You'll learn this about me. I'm full of takes. Uh, some hot, some lukewarm, some mediocre, some some <laughs> obvious. Um, I want to kind of start at the top because there's a couple things I really want to reference about this query that struck me immediately. I call it agent brain. My wheels kind of start clicking very early on. And when I'm doing an in-person query critique, a lot of times I'll stop someone in the middle of their pitch and be like, wait, let's just let's just nip this in the bud because I have a question and it's going to influence my entire thing. So the first thought I had when I hear the words, um, there's an own voices discussion that we could go into. Some people think it's necessary. Some people think it's not. I think that the last sentence where uh, the author says, I am a black woman that grew up in the American Midwest, I personally err on the side of just say what you mean, because own voices can sometimes be a catch-all. So my own voices thing, especially because it's directly followed by YA gothic fantasy, I'm like, so own voices goth, own voices fantasy, you know, like, what is the own voices part of this? And because it doesn't come in until later, that can kind of throw you sometimes. Um, Also, gothic fantasy, we have to be a little tricky with the term gothic, because everyone kind of thinks differently. 
my my first thought was, okay, is it a gothic romance, gothic horror? Um, and then the next question kind of running through once we got to like the third paragraph is what year is it? Because, you know, this could theoretically be taking place at any time. And based on some of the themes here, um, you know, like the bluesmen, um, it does say decades old, but like, you know, how many decades are we talking? So really, really grounding us in if this is contemporary or not, I think would have really helped. Um, and arguably, I don't know if I'd also use the word fantasy, maybe even like contemporary fantasy or something just to put that in there. Um, I'm, I'm also a fan of gothic, but when someone says gothic, I'm picturing like gothic, you know, like sweeping halls and, you know, running around in white nightgowns, fleeing for your life kind of a thing. So um, it's a really, really strong opening for sure. I really, really like the character paragraphs. The author does a great job of setting up stakes and vibes. I use the word vibes a lot. You're going to get used to this. Everything is a vibe to me. So so when I look at this, I'm like, I'm feeling the vibes. As a huge fan of horror, I would actually say, use just say horror. Because if it's contemporary horror, this seems to hit all the marks. And then after the reading the sample, you know, I, I felt that. Uh, the couple of like things that I had that, that you could potentially, you know, kind of kind of get a little bit tighter. There's a part where at the first end of the first character paragraph, she says, uh, the character's paralyzed by fear, so she escapes into music and media instead of actively doing anything. That's kind of a passive and vague way to say, like, she just kind of does nothing. So I would I would actually lose that. But overall, my first thoughts about this are, you know, I immediately thought of Robert Johnson's Crossroad Blues and Supernatural episodes, which, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people our age are going to be like excited about that if they were a Supernatural fan. So that's a great vibe. I would 100% request this based on this query. Um, and then the only other thing I wanted to reference is the manuscript content warning, which we're seeing more and more often. It's it's all over the board. Some agents say they want them. Some agents say no. But I am pro content warning because let's talk. I mean, best case scenario, someone's going to roll their eyes and be like, okay, well, I didn't need that. Worst case scenario, you know, you're protecting someone from getting a, a very bad shock, especially if they're, you know, an assault survivor or there's something else that could be really triggering for them. I always really appreciate the heads up. So, um, yeah, I mean, this is a really strong query. The only one thing I would say is maybe reordering the paragraphs, which I'm probably going to say every time. I personally prefer the market paragraph where we say, you know, the word count, the title, everything. I prefer that at the end, right before the author intro, because I like to jump right into the story and find out who is this main character? Why do we care about them, etc. Because I'm a character driven person. That's my taste level. So that's the basics. So on that, because Carly and Cece like it the other way around, and I know for our listeners, they're going to be super frustrated. They're like, what the hell, man? How are we supposed to know which which agents like what? So do you specify on your website? Do you say how you want it kind of written to you or, or not necessarily? No, because that would be a logical thing for me to do, right? <laughs> that would be helpful, but no. Um, I, so it's never going to be a deal breaker for me. It's just me thinking, well, if I was the one writing this query, this is what I would put. It, it's really, it's never going to be like, I would be really surprised. Let's put it this way. If an agent is like, your paragraphs weren't in the order that I personally prefer. So I'm going to say, no, don't work with that person because they're, they're going to be really obnoxious about everything, I think. So I, I really, really like this. I The sample is amazing. I basically, all my notes on it were just... <laughs> This is awesome. The only can, question can is you give us a, Can you give us an overview then of those opening pages? 
For sure, yeah. So the opening pages kind of start with the main character. It jumps right into the action, which I prefer. In any given horror story, you really want to start with that like unsettling, you know, kind of one note, something's off with this, you know, and that's I was feeling it through all the pages. It's basically the main character going through some family heirlooms and finding out about some family history that she'd been unaware of. Um, And it kind of cuts off early, but we find out that, you know, this character is from Minnesota and visiting, uh, visiting family and kind of finding things. And I assume that the next thing that happens is that, you know, there's like a hymnal that they find that seems very haunted to me. There's a character, Evie or Evie, who's a a missing family member that they didn't know anything about. Uh, I'm again, I'm very, I would immediately request more pages after this. I have no, I really have no notes about the, the voice or the prose. Because the other thing I will reference a couple times later too is that the query vibe matches the sample vibe. And so for me, the reason horror keeps coming up is gothic. We tend to kind of associate gothic with more like purple prose a lot of the time or like, you know, very, very wordy and um, not always didactic, but, you know, very illustrative prose. I think with this, it does feel more like horror um, in a good, in the best possible way. So I would actually probably lean into that in the query more because from the first page, it, it matches what I would expect, which is exactly what you want it to do. You always want to kind of underpromise and over deliver with the sample. Wonderful, Veronica. Thank you so much for that. All right, let's move on to the second query letter. Okay, so the second query is a different genre. Dear blank, The Corset Girls, my first novel, complete at 76,000 words, is a historical romance with serious potential. Readers who have liked the Good Girls series by Kerrigan Byrne or the Hellion Club series by Chastity Bolin will enjoy my book. This is a simultaneous submission. I'm going to reference that later. Michael Serafin Kelly, born and reared in the hell of Whitechapel, punched his way to a fortune in the worst of the worst Victorian London gangs, the Jacks of Seven Dials. All that is behind him, but the money has done nothing to fill his aimless life, one blackened by guilt and the ghosts of violence, both trying to drag him back to the slums. New paragraph. Jillian Morehouse led a charmed life in Hertfordshire until the death of her parents. Then she was plunged into years of drudgery, first in an orphanage and then in service to a titled lecher, a man she is just fatally stabbed with a carving knife. Now I'm in. She hides her crime and her identity in a Mayfair corset workshop, Salon Serena, where she fears every hour that police will burst through the door and haul her away. New paragraph. A woman with no experience of violence and a man who's an expert in it. If like calls to like, then what is the shared ferocity that drives Jillian and Michael together? Is it a flash fire of attraction or a crucible of forge in which molten desire is tempered into something that both of them desperately need to survive? I am a cultural historian. My focus is 19th century society, and I live to tell the secret stories of things from bum rolls to bob and winders. I am a proud member of Romance Writers of America and a winner of a scholarship to its 2021 convention. Thank you for considering my book. Wow. So again, dun, dun, dun. Vibes. Vibes, vibes, man. Okay. So your take on that. So, okay. So the first thing I would say um, about the first paragraph, again, we're starting with the market paragraph. That's totally fine. It's a completely optional move. The reason I usually reference in my case um, that we want to start with the characters is because that tends to be what draws you in and makes you want to read. Um, most in my experience. But I will say this. uh, One thing that I personally think is unnecessary is when people will put this as a simultaneous submission. I know some people will say they want that. But to me, I don't, you know, we don't do exclusive submissions at my agency.
consistency. And I kind of, as someone who's also a writer, I, I would never assume that it was, uh, you know, a, an exclusive submission because it's just not realistic these days most of the time. The other thing I was going to reference about it is uh, that the author mentions her that it's her first novel or their first novel, sorry, right after the title. That's also something that could be unnecessary. But if you're going to include it, I would actually put it at the end of your um, author intro paragraph where it's, you know, I am a proud member of Romance Writers of America. This would be my debut novel, mostly just because it's, you know, it's not the most relevant detail. You always want to kind of start as a former journalist. I like the nut graph, you know, the most important information up front. Uh, that's probably my biggest influence. I will say um, in any romance query, the, the the convention is usually, you know, if it's I'm assuming based on this, that it's going to be third person limited in the sample and dual POV. So it's going to be, you know, the male love interest POV and the female love interest POV, which is I think what we get. It's not in the sample that like, I can't tell you for sure, because we only get one of the characters in the sample. But that's what I'm assuming. So if that's how it follows, my other feedback for this would be if you're going to start with the male POV sample, then you should have his paragraph at the top, which is what this author is doing. So we start with Michael. Um, I really like the paragraph. There, there's, I mean, there's a lot of vibe here, for lack of a better term. There's a lot of, you know, we're talking, I almost want to read this in like a Guy Ritchie character accent was my first feeling. I was feeling, I was feeling Peaky Blinders vibes from this in the best possible way. Overall, I think it kind of warns you ahead of time, not a content warning, so to speak, but you know, this is going to be kind of more of a gritty romance. Personally, I love a blue collar historical romance, which we don't have enough of in my experience. But you know, you can tell it's going to be crime, there's going to be criminals, there's going to be violence. The fact that you immediately jump into the fact that the the femme character basically just stabbed someone with a carving knife. I mean, I'm I'm in <laughs> women with knives this is one of my big hooks that I automatically am like, okay, all right, here we go. Um, also, arguably, you know, if you did want to include a content warning, you could put content warning for sexual assault, even though you overtly state it, you know, in the in the paragraph. But really, really good job of talking about stakes and what the characters have to lose at the end of each paragraph, which I always, always advise. Kind of the three part thing that I tell people that they should always think about is what does your character want more than anything? Why can't they have it? And then what will happen if they get it and or don't get it? So it's like that kind of goal, motivation, conflict, disaster up to the catalyst of the story. I do think that the the joint paragraph where you, where you kind of switch more into third person, you know, kind of omniscient and go toward, you know, talking about kind of the themes, it could probably be a little bit more personalized, let's say, to the characters because, you know, talking about it, it very, kind of goes into that like omniscient narrator voice of like a woman with no experience. I almost hear the Mr. Movie Phone voice, you know, like in a world where, um, you know, and then, and then it kind of kicks me out of of the voice of of the characters before again not a deal breaker just a style choice i mean it's really it's really well written though i will say so yeah i mean it's it's really strong pretty much my only notes were just i wrote vibes a lot <laughs> <laughs> and forget books with hooks it's not books with carving knives books with vibes and carving knives is the new title of the segment yes. love it love it 100%. okay Okay, so give us an overview of those opening pages. Okay, so here's another thing about that I'm, it's it's going to be, you're going to be sixes on this because some agents are like pro-prologue, some are anti-prologue. This one starts with a prologue, Whitechapel, London, 1880. The character, Michael, we don't 100% know his age, but basically, again, I, I'm vibe. It, what, I immediately thought Guy Ritchie, Peaky Blinders, because it is very like gritty. There's basically uh, a, an old timey police officer who's having a 
let's say an, an interlude with a sex worker and ends up like beating a guy with a stick. And, and then the main character, Michael, you know, basically knocks out a police officer, a copper, as they say, there's a lot of slang. There's a lot of, you know, kind of Cockney vibes to it. Uh, I definitely heard the accent, you know, in my head when I was reading it, it's well-written. It's very action-packed. The only thing I would say is that it really jumps straight into like what some people would call the grit um, as an agent who's really like sex positive and, and, you know, like the word whore is thrown around, for example, in the, in the sample a lot. Um, and there's, you know, it's, it's just something that it's not going to be for everybody, but it's like that saying goes, you might not be everyone's cup of tea. You're going to be someone's shot of whiskey, right? So it's strong. Like it's very in your face. Like here's where we are. I don't think it minces words. I, I will say that there's a little bit of a vibe check between the, the query tone and the sample. I would almost lean in. That's why I think that third paragraph where the author kind of goes into that narrator voice, it, it sounds a lot more literary. I don't want to use the word literary in a, in, not in a derogatory or, or ameliorative way, but basically it goes straight into like a lot of swearing and stuff. So, so I, and I'm, I'm pro swearing as well. So, but, but I would say make sure that the query kind of sets you up for that so that it's not like a slap to the face when you open those pages. I would almost even say with your sample in the future, it, this is a really strong prologue and it kind of shows how the character got into the life of fighting underground you know, battles. Um, I still don't know exactly how old the character is in this prologue, to be fair. But essentially what I would say is for, for future reference, I would actually start your sample past the prologue, especially if you only have like five to 10 pages, you want to start with, you know, at the beginning of the actual story. Um, it's okay to have a prologue, maybe just hold off on sending it without, you know, like once, once someone requests the full is my, my piece of advice for this. Um, yeah, I mean, it's really strongly written, but it's, it's very, um, I will say the sample does not read like a romance at all. (laughs) It reads like a crime novel, basically, which I don't hate, but you know. Yeah. And that's a, that's a wonderful suggestion to kind of, just because there is a prologue doesn't mean you have to submit that. Cause remember, if you've only got five pages to make that huge impression, you want to be going with whatever the strongest kind of pages are. And so if chapter one is sort of stronger than the prologue, then like Veronica says, you can always submit the prologue when the agent asks for the full manuscript. Yeah. And another good rule of thumb is it is what it is. Like you want, when I say under promise and over deliver, that doesn't mean promise me a romance and give me a crime, you know, caper. I want, you know, you definitely want it to feel like a romance when you're, you know, in your opening pages, because if someone gets confused, a lot of agents will just close the document, move on, hit, you know, polite rejection. Um, you'll hear that a lot with our, with our, you know, kind of form rejections where it's like, oh, the, you know, the sample didn't match up to what I was hoping to see based on the query. I end up saying that a lot because it'll be like, oh, the tone I was expecting was this. And it was, I didn't even know where I was when I opened the sample. I thought maybe is this the right sample? So just, you know, confusion is never a good vibe to go for with this. Yeah. Uh, as our listeners know, the minute Carly says, I'm confused, we all take a shot of something because it's a, we play the I'm confused game. Okay. Let's do the third query letter. Okay. Dear Bianca, Carly, and Cece, thank you for the podcast. Please note that this query is for a future guest agent who specializes in YA or science fiction, which I kind of half qualify for that. Please consider my 75,000 word young adult science fiction novel titled, title redacted, in a future where every high school student must successfully terraform a dead planet into a thriving world during their world build semester away 
a 17-year-old slacker learns that his top-of-the-class older brother has gone missing during his build and battles self-doubt, a school rival, and collapsing planets in order to find and save his beloved brother. In 2376, powerful nanotechnology enables quick terraforming, which transforms planets into habitable environments similar to Earth. In this world of limitless energy, every high school student must successfully terraform and maintain a stable planet during their world build semester away, using Title Redacted as their workbook. After Kobe Cole, a brooding slacker, learns that Gray, his popular older brother, has gone missing during his world build, the disappearance reminds Kobe of how their father went missing on a distant planet 10 years ago while writing a new version of Title Redacted. Determined to act, Kobe steals a ship to find his brother. Joined by May, Gray's stuck-up girlfriend, Jawahir, a brainiac control freak, and Crazy Cormac, the class clown, Kobe must overcome his self-doubt and step out of Gray's shadow to lead his motley crew across the galaxy if he is to have any chance of finding Gray. For the past several years, I've been taking writing classes at UCLA Extension's writing program and San Francisco's Playwrights Foundation. In 2020, this novel placed as one of three finalists for the UCLA Extension Writing Program's Allegra Johnson Writing Prize. The judges commented that they found that interspersing each chapter with the guide and the missing brother's narrative to be unique and engrossing. This is the Artemis Fowl meets the Martian for the YA science fiction space we need. I've lived and worked in England, France, East and West Africa, Japan, and Silicon Valley. My varied work experience includes organic farming, the Peace Corps, the Japanese publishing industry, and mobile product development. I have an MBA from Hope. I'm not going to pronounce this right. From Hope to Commercial, it's in French. Uh, Paris and live in San Francisco. Thank you for your consideration. Sincerely, author's name. Wonderful. Okay, so what was your take on that? Okay, so this is where I kind of run into. I have actually written. I've 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 written and sold and uh, worked with many. YA science fiction projects, but I am very open about this online and in real life, that world building is not my main thing. I am very, very big into character-driven narratives. So even if there's a lot of world building, I always like to center the characters and what they want and their goals because, you know, it's like, as a huge, huge fan of science fiction, watchers of shows like, you know, The Expanse and, you know, all the Philip K. Dick things, I, I find that when you when you jump in, like this query is definitely prioritizing and let's say we're front and centering your world building and plot here way more than you are your characters, starting with the fact that the first paragraph really introduces the world, doesn't even name the main character, just calls them a 17-year-old slacker. It's a choice. It's not necessarily the wrong choice, but you need to know that you're making this choice here, right? That you are centering the world building, which again, in hardcore sci-fi land and genre, like that's something that a lot of editors and fans like. They want to read about the world and the characters are kind of just populated in it. But that being said, for me, that would be something that would immediately kind of make my brain go, okay, this is a lot of stuff I need to remember about this world and this in this you know plot before I really am, am, am invested yet like do I emotionally connect with this at all so um there's just a lot I wouldn't even call it info dumping there's just a lot of world building right off the bat in this query so you're just gonna you're just gonna have to understand that the type of agent who's like really into that and who wants to get in with you and like figure out how the science works and like Star Trek it out that's gonna hook that kind of person whereas the kind of person that I am might be like oh I don't know this sounds like a lot of this sounds like a lot of sciencing and mathing you know <laughs> like for me. So those are a couple of things I thought is like, you know, not naming the character, 
I will say this is a this is a personal issue, but whenever someone uses a word like crazy or especially naming a character crazy, that is an ableist term that we're trying to kind of get away from if we possibly can. So I definitely would maybe rethink that decision. Obviously, there's mitigating circumstances, I'm sure, but essentially, especially for something set so far in the future um, and, you know, kind of talking about terraforming and there's mention in the sample about basically, uh, you know, how how the the people before the people who came before really didn't do a great job at you know saving the world and keeping the earth alive and such um and so that's something that i would you know for something that seems to be very multicultural in approach with characters from different uh, ethnic and cultural backgrounds you do want to kind of be more sensitive to that and really try and lean into authenticity as much as you can so that's another concern that i kind of jumped out at me also the term like brainiac control freak we just want to be careful about the stereotypes we're using. The other thing that really jumped out at me was the comps. Uh, Artemis Fowl meets the Martian. Great comps. However, Artemis Fowl is middle grade and the Martian is adult. And so if for a YA project, I can guarantee you that there are better comps that are also more recent for both of those vibes. Just looking at this, I mean, tonally, the the expectations set up by this query, this is another great example of how, to me, the tone of this uh, query is very kind of narratorial and kind of almost, uh, you know, positioned almost like a review or a blurb that someone else would have written about the book. And then once you get into the sample, it's very colloquial. It breaks the fourth wall. Um, it does a lot of kind of like sly, you know, sly wink at the camera type moments, what we would call. So tonally, the query, you know, sets an expectation that the sample doesn't follow. Neither of them are bad. They're just so different in tone and approach that it, it jars you when you get in. The sample actually feels a lot more to me like a James Patterson's Daniel X series, which is actually set for YA, than either of the comps you're using in the query. There's also a CW show called Pandora that has a really similar uh, kind of space academy with STEM-focused vibes and in a similar kind of cast that you might want to look at. You don't always need to use like a TV show. There's definitely books that are a better comp, but definitely try and find comps if you possibly can that are at least for the YA audience, you know, the teenage uh, young adult audience. And because they're 17, you're pretty much smack in the middle of like solid YA. It's not upper YA necessarily. Uh, the tone is very YA. Yeah, those are my main my main comments is basically just, you know, really trying to ask yourself, like, why am I making the choices I'm making, being very intentional about those choices. And and also, you know, it is possible to change your query letter depending on who you're querying. So if you know you're querying an agent who's really into the world building, then lean into that. But if you are querying somebody like Veronica, then, you know, rephrase the query to kind of focus more on, on the characters. So that's where personalization is so important. So Veronica, can you give us an overview of what's in those opening pages? For sure. Yeah. So I actually, I also kind of got, um, the, 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 again, the vibes were very like, I want to say kind of irreverent, um, you know, kind of a hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy vibe a little bit, because the, first of all, the sample starts off, the first line is the Milky Way sucks, which is a banger first line. Um, but it, but it feels like the character is speaking directly to the reader, which again, I don't hate because I like things that are a little bit kind of rule breaky, provided the author, you know, knows the rules before they try to break them. I don't mind a fourth wall break. I do know some people who immediately are like, I hate this. Stop talking to me. I'm weirded out by this. Um, but I will say there's also some, it, it feels a little messy in parts. There's a lot of tense shifts that seem unintentional where it's going from kind of first perfect to first present. It is written in first person, which is another reason I was very thrown because the, you know, the query was very kind of distanced from that, you know? And so to me, I feel like the voice, if you're going to be really voicey with your sample, I kind of feel like your query should be more voicey. And that's also maybe just more of a personal thing. Again, there's the character called Crazy Cormac that I feel like we could probably come up with a more 
if nothing else, you know, just a, a more unique and and kind of uh, name that you come up with yourself, you know, not resting on, on you know, potentially problematic things. Mostly, mostly, yeah, there's just, it throws you right into it. You know, it's like the first day of class. There is a little bit of telly. It feels a little telly at parts, which I know is not a word that's a real word. I like to say it, there's telling and then there's storytelling, right? So sometimes it feels like it's part of the storytelling and it makes sense to be like, oh yeah, this guy, you know, it's it's his sophomore year. He's plunked out three times or whatever. That that feels like storytelling. But then it's like, oh, as you know, Bob, you know, we've done that. That's telling. And sometimes it's hard to always exactly, you know, give a rule, but you know it when you see it, you know? Yeah, that kind of info dumpy stuff. We, you know, authors, we try and slip that in and we hope nobody's going to notice. And I promise you they always notice. Yeah. Well, and especially with a query like this, that is so world building, I always kind of have that, you know, feeling of like, when I open up the sample, I'm like, is the sample going to be really info dumpy? Because it's very clear that the author is really proud of the world building that they've done and they should be. But there is a, that's why it's such a skill, you know, to, to like sprinkle in the details instead of hitting you over the head with them right off the bat. But it's, it's not a bad sample by any stretch. I just think that maybe it deserves another pass. Um, Chuck Wendig actually has a lot of really good writing guides about this. And I would suggest them to the author to look at kind of like the showing versus telling. Damn Good Story is one of the good guides that he has. So definitely check that out. Wonderful. Okay, let's look at that last query letter. Dear Bianca, Carly, and Cecilia, the guidance I've gathered from this podcast has changed my perspective on editing. From dreading the struggle to enjoying the challenge, I am giddy with each new edit I discover that was not apparent in the previous draft. Thank you for your wisdom. Dirt and Tears is a memoir about caregiving for a cancer patient, addiction, a mother-daughter relationship, and trekking. Complete in 77,000 words, this story could have occurred if the main character of Wild by Cheryl Strayed took over responsibilities for the main character in the revised Fundamentals of Caregiving, the book by Jonathan Evison. Natasha Bufo, a 28-year-old depressed Googler turned adventurous backpacker, leaves New Zealand and returns to California after her mom is diagnosed with lung cancer, trading hostels for hospitals and happiness for heartache. With zero medical background and little information from doctors, living in a town without friends, a job, or her own apartment, she navigates the caregiving experience using the only useful skills she has, backpacking. Although her mom claimed they caught it early, her neighbors worried it might be her last Christmas, so Natasha surprised her mom at her front door. Suddenly, she was a primary caregiver, expected to understand words like prognosis and confidently dole out pain pills. With a wooden spoon and butter in hand, she battled the rusty nail taste caused by chemotherapy. Entering an adult candy store of medical marijuana treats, she found compassion in the unlikeliest of places. Even with her mom's stubborn independence, she embraced a new normal, reversing child-parent roles, braiding her mom's frail hair, and washing her 59-year-old body. Natasha's sanity was sustained through late-night vanilla ice cream with Nutella, stumbling over the strings of her new ukulele, and giggling on day hikes with her mom's radiation therapist, who became her only friend. Although the last three weeks she was promised ended in closer to three days, Natasha had already learned to slow down and appreciate the beautiful moments of caring for someone you love before there are no moments left. My writing education is formed from classes at the Writing Salon and with Bianca Murray, along with the Writer's Oasis and the Rugged Outdoors Women Writing Workshops, and through critiques from professional editors. My work has been published by Sisu Magazine, 
Tahoe Quarterly, Gear Junkie, The Dust Magazine, Out There Podcast, and USA Today's Storytellers Project. Bird by Bird by Anne Lamott, Writing Hard Stories by Melanie Brooks, and Save the Cat by Blake Snyder are all trail maps for my writing journey. <laughs> I love that someone references, someone gives a shout out to those who came before and helped. When I'm not sitting in front of my laptop at 6am with my manuscript dimly lit or reading a book from the stacks littered around my house, I am either working for a youth ski snowboard access nonprofit, teaching mental health first aid, or attempting an audacious outdoor adventure. I'm currently training for a kayak cycle run Olympic triathlon, and last summer completed my top Tahoe triple tour, circumnavigating Lake Tahoe, trekking, biking, and kayaking over 19 days. It was here in the Sierra Nevada mountains where I found a place, a career, and a person to love. My first five pages are below. Thank you for your time, consideration, and if I'm fortunate enough to earn it, your feedback. Sincerely, Natasha Bufo. I'm exhausted just listening to that quick letter. <laughs> Natasha, you are amazing. I, I'm sitting here going, wow, I really didn't do anything last year. Uh, anything close to any of these things. Uh, so I can't complain about any of the stuff. So, okay. So my first thing about this query, and this is like a small issue is the formatting. It's not, it's done in, in uh, like manuscript format, double spaced all one block, which makes it a little hard to follow and also makes it look way longer than it is. Um, it's still a little long to be fair, but definitely you want to format in blocks if you can for the query. Otherwise it, it can be, again, it can look like you're jumping straight into the novel. This is a thing. So I've worked with memoirs pretty selectively. And one of the reasons I say that I have a hard time working with memoirs is it's really hard to look someone in the eye across a, a critique table and say, Hey, you know, that's a really cool story, but like, I'm not into it. <laughs> this is your real life, but it doesn't, you know, strike a chord with me. So I'm sorry. Thanks for playing. You know, like, it's always been difficult for me to kind of critique someone's real life and tell them that it's not compelling enough. Um, that's definitely not the case here, to be fair. But also, um, you know, that's the thing about memoir, right, is a big part of memoir is to make you feel seen, make people feel less alone. And the fact that many people have been through similar, you know, caretaker experiences, I think is incredibly, um, you know, it's it's such a good a, a thing to kind of not not good necessarily, but you know, it's it's a, a, a human shared human experience that unfortunately, a lot of people have had to go through, especially lately. So I think that also does make it timely, you know, becoming a caregiver for someone who is um, ill or disabled. The biggest thing that struck me in the query and also in the sample was passive voice. That is something I, I often tell my authors, kill it with fire. There are a couple moments, you know, where you you just kind of shift. It's like disassociating, but in text, you know, it's when you're like, oh, stepping back, especially for a memoir, the fact that this is written as if it's about someone else, but you're also signing it. And then when you go into the sample, it's in first person. That can be kind of confusing. Another thing that I wanted to reference, and I'm not even sure about the answer of this, is mentioning, you know, the main character of Wide by uh, a Wild by Cheryl Strayed and the main character. Like, do we call the the main character like the, we in, in fanfic you would call it a self insert, but it's a you know it's a basically autobiographical. So would you call yourself a main character in your own memoir? I've never really thought about it until now. Is that a thing? Like, well, what we do, what we say on the show is we tell our memoir writers to kind of see themselves as characters when they're writing a memoir so that, um, that all the story structure rules apply, you know? So you need your inciting incident, your key event. So we tell them to view it as fiction because all those storytelling components need to be there. Um, but that's more to kind of help with the actual, you know, storytelling. For sure. And that's actually really good advice. That's why one of the top books that I always recommend, and I know this author's already like shouted out some of the great ones that I also recommend pretty 
pretty uh, frequently, like Save the Cat. But I also highly recommend for any memoir writer, um, The Art of Memoir by Mary Carr. And then also Good Prose, The Art of Nonfiction by Tracy Kidder and Richard Todd. Those are really, really helpful guides, especially when it comes to taking fiction tools and applying them to a nonfiction, you know, narrative. Um, those are always going to be really great because it is it is difficult sometimes, especially in the most emotionally taxing scenes to not want as a writer, you know, and as a journalist too, like I had such a hard time sometimes when it got, when it got rough, I did want to kind of take a step back because it's like, oh no, this is too raw. You know, this is too fresh. This is too much, but you want to challenge those instincts that you have, you know, because that that's going to make for a stronger narrative and a more honest narrative. Overall, I think the query is maybe a little too wordy and it definitely reads more like a synopsis in a couple places. I also caught a theme, which this is something that is completely unique to me, but it's anecdotal triplets. There's a lot of, you know, there's, that's, that's, that's a term we use for, you know, um, instead of, instead of painting the whole picture, you pick like three spots on the thing and say, you know, one, two, and three. Um, and I noticed that the author does this a couple of times where it's like, everything's kind of in clusters of three. So, um, you know, just make sure that if you're doing that, that it's an intentional choice and that it's not, it doesn't start to become, you know, too repetitive or redundant. Also, again, like the entering an adult candy store of miracle, medical marijuana treats, um, you know, that's a passive voice kind of feeling uh, part. So the, those are just examples of what we kind of see in the sample later on. Yeah, overall, again, if the query is written in third person, and then it goes into a first person, you know, this can be a little jarring, can be something that kind of throws you off a little bit. Again, passive voice in the sample. There's a lot of summarizing happening versus storytelling, which I think, you know, again, can be a tricky thing when we talk about difficult things or when there's when there's just a lot, you know, to cover. The scope can be really tricky. So I think almost thinking of it, another trick that I use is thinking of it almost more like a screenplay and like the camera angles, like you're directing your own story, imagining, you know, who would you cast in the in the life story of your life? Um, what scenes would you zoom in on? What scenes would you kind of do in a montage? That's more helpful because the storytelling does feel like a montage to me. And there's a lot of montages in this query that kind of, you know, skip over like, oh, this happened, then this happened, this happened. Obviously not in the same moment, but it's like, it feels montage to me. Another, this is a, a small nitpicky thing, but this is something that one of my uh, mentors would always kind of talk about. I caught a couple of punctuation things here. Generally speaking, I'm an AP style guide girl myself coming from being a journalist. But uh, generally, we want to see Chicago Manual of Style in nonfiction that tends to be across the board um, with, you know, especially because a lot of the publishers of memoirs are also in academics. And so, um, you know, just making sure that like your comma use and, you know, you're not using a hyphen where a colon needs to be, um, or you're not, you know, that you're using things consistently and intentionally throughout in the mechanical sense. That's always something that, you know, you shouldn't really have to worry about in your memoir when you're telling this really gut-wrenching story. But there are people out there who'll be like, mm -mm, this, this comma's in the wrong place. I'm out, you know? And so I'm trying to kind of save you from that person in advance. It's not me, but there are people like that. I won't name them. There are people like that. Could you give us an overview of what was in those opening pages? Yes, yes. Sorry, apologies. Um, I... So, so it's kind of, it kind of skips around. It starts, you know, the character starts off, uh, the first, the first line is just to give you a vibe. The first line is unable to comprehend any other options. I decided I had only one to hike. So it's really summarizing. It almost feels more like an introduction or a blurb, to be fair. The first, um, you know, it's not a moment that we're seeing. It's it's um, a lot of, that's why I, I struggled with this, to be honest. Like, it's a great story. There's very clearly from the query a lot of really compelling details. I would definitely advise, you know, taking taking another 
stab at the if this is in fact the opening that that is the sample you know i would take another stab because it's it's describing something that happened after the fact essentially and for me and this might just be me but i really like to be thrown into the moment for example in the query it makes it sound like the first moment is leaving new zealand and returning to california and showing up at her mother's front door and that's not what we're seeing with this with a sample so also again setting those expectations in the query and then meeting or exceeding ideally those expectations in the sample is what you want to aim for it's again it's not bad it's it's really well written it's just there's a lot of passive voice a lot of telling after the fact instead of showing um and these are i mean i honestly don't even have a good piece of advice for how to fix it other than reading those guides I talked about because I would also really struggle to talk about this if I were the writer in a way that you know felt crafty and not heart-wrenching you know yeah I I take my hats off to memoirists it's something that I would never even attempt so Same. really I can't yeah even telling the truth all the time is like well okay that's you know, I'm a Capricorn I can't be expected to talk about my feelings that's ridiculous <laughs> Two Capricorns on the show. We, we we definitely would not be talking about our feelings. Veronica, thank you so much for joining us today. It was amazing having you on the show. For our listeners, uh, Veronica will be back when we will have two authors on the show to discuss their queries with us. And if you're interested in querying Veronica, it's Fuse Literary. How would they best query you, Veronica? So we're currently closed to queries until January as an agency. I go through Query Manager, which helps me in my you know organizational effectiveness. So uh, my links are on the Fuse website. I also have them in most of my social medias. Um, and we're, you know, if you ever need to, there's also I also have a manuscript wish list page that you can go on for more information. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Right, let's go to today's guest. My youngest son starts kindergarten this year. I can't believe it. One of the tricky things, though, about my kids being in French immersion school and me not having French as a language myself is worrying about how we're going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are very lucky, though, to live in Ottawa, which is a bilingual city of a million people. And we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So it's going to be really easy for our kids to pick it up at a young age through school and sports activities. But me, on the other hand, growing up where French class wasn't taken too seriously and we goofed off. I am so sorry, Madame Corrigan. We're going to have to make up the difference. And that is where Rosetta Stone comes in as the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. And it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. Immersion is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio to audio from native speakers, and then gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. So you can really hone those pronunciations, which we know is key to sounding fluent. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program to get because they have been the expert for 30 years and used by millions, thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language learning training online. Of all the apps, it is the best at speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of native speakers. Rosetta Stone has a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent built into the program. So as you practice speaking, you're going to get your feedback on how well you're pronouncing words, other language apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. 
Think about the cost of a one month language course. Think about the cost of a one hour private tutoring session. But with Rosetta Stone, you enjoy a lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. And right now we have a special offer for you guys that is 50% off. That is lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off, a complete steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's visit rosettastone.com slash today. 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Before we go to today's guest, this is just a reminder that we've got the virtual retreat coming up in January, the last weekend of January, and you definitely don't want to be missing out on that. For more details, go to my website, biancamaray.com, look at the courses, services, and retreats tab, and you'll find the full lineup there and the link on where to sign up for that. And also a reminder that our Kofi supporters get access to exclusive additional content on our Kofi page every Thursday. So if you would like access to that again look at the website biancamaray.com and you'll find a link there on how to become a Kofi supporter. Today's guest was born in India and raised in the U.S. since the age of nine. She has a BA from Stanford University and an MFA from California College of Arts. Her debut novel The Henna Artist became a New York Times bestseller, a Reese Witherspoon book club pick and is being developed into an episodic TV series. The sequel, The Secret Keeper of Japur, released June 2021 and will be followed by a third book in the trilogy in 2023. It's my pleasure to welcome Elka Joshi. Elka, welcome to the show. What an absolute delight to have you on the show with us, to be chatting with us. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me, Bianca. This is really a treat. Well, and your journey to publication is hugely fascinating to me for many reasons, one of which is that you found yourself being a debut novelist at the age of 62. And, you know, something that I get from our listeners time and again, the feedback I get from them is that they feel like there's this ticking clock, that if they don't publish by 40 or by 50 or by 60, that's it, it's not going to happen for them. And when I hear stories like yours, it makes me hugely happy, not just because I love celebrating other writers' success, but because it disproves that theory. Plus, you published in COVID times, and most debut novelists who published during COVID had dismal sales and everything just kind of tanked, and you 
turn that on its head and you had a New York Times bestselling novel. So could you tell us a little bit about that before you share your advice with our listeners? Yeah, I think that uh, because I had never actually uh, wanted to be a writer since I was a little girl, I had no pressure to become a writer, if that makes sense. I did not write in my journals. I did not write in my diary, I'm going to be an author someday, or I'm going to write these short stories. I really thought I wanted to be an artist. And so that's how I approach everything. I'm a visual learner and I love uh, visual uh, environments around me and I'm stimulated by all kinds of visual treats. So I thought I would be, you know, doing something in the arts, uh, actually painting or being an art director or being a museum curator. And then when the opportunity came up to go to an MFA program for two years, I listened to what my husband had said. He said, you've been writing advertising for, 20 years, 25 years at this time, I think that you could actually write a novel. I think that you can transfer your skills into a long form fiction. And I just kept saying, oh, no, I'm just an advertising hack. I don't think I could ever do that. But he said, I think you can. So finally, I thought, all right, let me just go into a very intensive program and see if I can do this. And that's the genesis of the henna artist. It became my thesis presentation. So yes, then when it was finally published 10, 12 years later, then the pandemic was upon us. And so I thought, oh my gosh, I just spent 12 years of my life uh, working on a novel that is never going to see the light of day. So uh, there are some lessons that I have learned along the way about patience, about perseverance, and about passion that I want to share with people. Wonderful. And and I love that you listened to your husband. And I love that he was this cheerleader for you, because I feel like as writers, we get so much negative feedback. You know, we're sensitive souls. That's why we write. That's why we're artists. And yet so much of what we get is no, it's not good enough. You haven't got what it takes, etc. And so to have that one cheerleader in your life is hugely important. And to actually listen to them when that inner critic is telling you, you can't do it, you can't do it, to muzzle the inner critic and listen to the external cheerleader. Absolutely. I am very lucky in my choice of partner in my life. And I think that it's important for all writers to have that cheerleader in their life. It may not be their husband. It may be a teacher. It may be a friend, uh, maybe another fellow writer, but you do need cheerleaders to keep you going. There will absolutely be times when you will want to give up. And there were definitely times in my first debut novel where I did give up. I just stopped for a year or a year and a half, and I did not want to continue. But then something would propel me forward and keep encouraging me to go on. So I not only think it's important for you to surround yourself with people who are uh, going to encourage you, but it's important also to take time away, to step away from the work, because there are times when it is too close to you and you cannot see the forest for the trees. You do need to step back and just say, okay, I need to take a breather. I need to do something else completely different for a while so that I can recharge. Yeah, I agree with that. And we'll discuss that in a bit more detail shortly. But as well, we we get this advice from other writers. And you hear from a Stephen King who is like, you know, writing should be like a full-time job, but in the chair from nine to five every single day, except for weekends. And so we put this pressure on ourselves and we go, this is the way it must be, because if Stephen King does this, I must do this. But everybody's process is different. And we're going to discuss that shortly as well. So I, I love that you said that. 
As well, can I ask in terms of the MFA program, because that's also something we discuss a lot on the show, how important it is to a writer's writing journey, etc. And, you know, I know it will be different for every writer. How integral do you think it was in your journey to publication? It was absolutely important for me because I had limited time to learn how to do the fiction. I didn't just have uh, hours and hours every day. I was working full time. And then the recession came in 2008. And then I knew we would have about two years uh, where uh, my business would slow down because I was running my own agency and clients were saying, look, I don't know what's going to happen with our company. I don't know how many people we're going to have to lay off during this period. So we would really uh, like to pull back on some of these projects. And I'm like, okay, fine. Because one thing I always try to do, Bianca, is always try to make sure that there is enough money in my bank account that I can survive a one-year downturn. (laughs) So I thought, okay, um, you know, what I'm going to do is to enter one of these MFA programs because I only have this two-year window in which I can learn how to write fiction. And I wanted that kind of intense experience where hour after hour, I was in classes with people. We were reviewing each other's work. We were providing feedback and getting feedback. And then I was learning from instructors who were also working authors. This is so important in an MFA program. You need to be working with people who are working authors. They are uh, connected to the publishing world in a way that a lot of people are not. They have agents, they have publishers, and if they love your work, they might be able to forward them on to the people they know. This is the key to getting your work noticed. I really cannot stress this enough. I think that the writing world and the publishing world are like so many other worlds. It's who you know. And if you know the right people, and if you have written a beautiful piece of work, you can get it in front of those people and say, will you please send this off to your agent or your publisher if you like this work? And that's something that you can't do with everybody, but you can do it with those people who are connected. So that's what was helpful to me. It cost $66,000 over the course of two years. Not everybody has that kind of money. And I did take out a loan in order to pay for that but it was completely worth it. In my case, it was completely worth it. I think for so many people, an MFA is not worth it because they are not willing to put in the time and the effort and the multiple drafts it takes and the learnings from other people that it takes to be in that two-year program. If you're going to treat it like a holiday, then that's not going to work for you, right? But if you are willing to work really hard during that MFA program, I do think that it can work for you, especially if you're learning from people uh, who are well connected. If you're not willing to do that, then I would suggest you take evening classes. And uh, there are plenty of really good writing programs that focus on an evening class. And you can do that like every Thursday night or every Tuesday night, or, you know, uh, you can do that for years and get better and better at your craft. Yeah. And that's such a great organic way to sell yourself to people. Because for example, I tell people that as a South African, we were taught you never blow your own trumpet. You don't tell people how amazing you are. You don't sell yourself, you know, as a South African, you mean to be self-deprecating and other people must notice your worth without you telling them your worth. And so for someone like me, it was extremely difficult to be able to sell myself, which is what you expected to do so much these days in not just in publishing, you know, in, in general, especially in the US. And so, you know, if you surround yourself with those kinds of people and your work is speaking for itself, That's a great way as well to get noticed and to get people to champion your work. Because when I'm reading students' work and I think it's amazing, I will get them in touch with every single person 
that I feel like they need to be in touch with purely because I want them to succeed so much. So 100% excellent, excellent point there. All right. Can I I also say, Bianca, that I think that this is a bill of goods that women are sold over and over again, which is don't toot your own horn. Hey, I say toot your own horn as frequently and as loudly as you can. Because if you believe in yourself, then you are able to convey that belief to other people and you should. You should say, I've written a novel, I've written a short story, I've written a memoir that I think will resonate with a lot of readers. Here are the reasons why. One, two, three. I really think that having done the research on what women are looking for these days, this will resonate with 80% of your readers. If you have the confidence to say something like that, say it. If you believe in in your work and you can say that, say it. Because if you don't, who's going to toot your horn? Who's going to do that for you? Nobody. No, there's nobody out there. And men do this all the time. Men toot their own horn. As we all know, when, when men go apply for jobs, they apply for jobs that they don't even have the skill levels for yet. And when they do that, they are posturing. They go in and they say, yeah, of course I can do that. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I've done that a hundred times. Oh, I've been super successful at that. And what's important is that women, we have found out through research, do not do that. They undersell themselves all the time. They're like, well, I I think I've done a little bit of that. I I think I might be able to do that. Can you imagine if you are the person hiring that crop of candidates, you're going to go for the person who says, yeah, I can do that for you. No problem. So be that person, be the confident person who says, I can do it. I'm tooting my own horn here. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, that's hugely inspiring. And that's something I've been trying to to do more of. Uh, and it takes a bit of getting used to, but absolutely. it's. Uh, I think it was Tina Fey who, who wrote in her memoir that just say you can do it and then figure out how to do it afterwards, firstly. But most of us do know how to do it. But we, like you say, we've been sold on this lie where we need to come across as differential and et cetera. So yeah, totally. Okay. So let's go into your five pieces of advice that you have for emerging writers in terms of succeeding. What is your first tip? The first tip, which we were never told in our MFA program is, oh, you've written a nice piece of work. Now you need to revise it like 500,000 times in order to make it perfect. Nobody can get away with a first draft that's perfect. Nobody can get away with a second or third draft that's perfect. You will constantly have to rewrite. So writing is really all about rewriting. And when I didn't know that, I thought that people were, uh, I was annoyed when I was constantly being told, yeah, okay, now write this again in this way. Write this again now in the second person. Write this again now where this character does this instead of that. And I would be so annoyed because I would be like, look, I was uh, under the impression that if I wrote something and you thought it was good, that it might get published. That's not the way it works. You need to rewrite something and rewrite something until uh, absolutely everyone who runs across it says, this is really amazing. And I think it will be published. So it takes, you know, it just takes so much patience to rewrite. And I used to hate the rewriting process, but frankly, I love it now because what it allows me to do and what it allowed me to do for both the henna artist and the secret keeper of Jaipur is it allowed me every, with every revision, I could go back from page one and I start layering another uh, very essential pattern in the book. I start layering maybe a history that I hadn't put in before. I start layering 
the backstory of a character I hadn't layered before. These are all really important things that you cannot uh, always think of the thousand things you need to imbue in your work with the first or second or third draft. You need to keep looking at it over and over again and you go, oh, right. And what about, you know, that scene? I think I could really make that scene sing if I go back over it again, or if I pepper my earlier words, my earlier chapters with a backstory that's really going to help this scene. So, you know, you have to keep rewriting. So that's number one. And and also just to add to that is that we don't know our characters that well in our first and our second draft. We are only getting to know them. We're getting to understand what motivates them, who they are, their emotions, their interiority, what drives them, what the stakes are. And so that layering is so important when we come back, when we finally have a handle on who they are. And then here's the thing, as we layer, we learn new things about them, which means we've got to come back and layer again. So 100% agree with that. Absolutely right, Bianca. I was just at a writer's retreat where one of the attendees was asking me if I would read her novel. I said, how many drafts have you done? She said, four. I said, have you written backstories of all of your characters? And she said, what's a backstory? And then I knew, I said, she's not ready. She's not ready because she doesn't know enough about her characters. Uh, So yes, you're absolutely right. You have to know your characters backwards and forwards. And you can only do that if you're rewriting and rewriting and rewriting and getting to know them. All right, number two. Uh, what I've learned is, and I think this is so uh, key when you are down and when you are frustrated with the writing process, nobody writes alone. This is a group endeavor. And I found this out through the 10 years that it took me to write The Henna Artist and to write the 30 drafts that it took to get it published. And that is, I had help from the instructors in my MFA program who gave me advice. My thesis advisors gave me advice. All of my fellow students who helped me make the the, uh, draft even better. Then I had my agent who uh, took me through multiple drafts over three years. Then I had two developmental editors who helped take me to the finish line and gave me some very key and very sort of finessed points about a novel that I hadn't learned from anybody else. And uh, so they helped me. And then finally, when the book was sold to the publisher, I had a new editor. My acquiring editor was my new, you know, reviser. And so she was telling me, okay, I'd like you to change this one character, please. And I'd like you to change this ending. And I'd like you to think about that. Uh, Just when you think you're done, you're not done. But people are there to help you along the way. And you need to be open to their suggestions because everybody's going to help you make this book better. Nobody is trying to make the book worse. They're all trying to make it better. So it is a group endeavor. Definitely. And when you said they help carry you across the finish line, I just had a flashback to, so in South Africa, there's this marathon, huge marathon called the Comrades Marathon. It's really, really far up mountains and down into valleys. And at the end of it, sometimes you see someone literally being carried over the finish line by two other uh, two other runners who are pulling them across. And sometimes it's like that when you're writing a book as well. You need someone to actually just carry you right, right the way across. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, so you do need to know you're not alone. A third thing is, and I mentioned this already, it's okay to step away. During the writing of The Henna Artist over those 10 years, first of all, I stopped writing because uh, right after my MFA degree, uh, my mother got sick and then I was helping her get uh, to doctors and hospitals and so on. And she died. I had written The Henna Artist for her. 
the main character is modeled after my mother and this sort of imaginary life that she might have had had she not had the conventional Indian arranged marriage. So I stopped writing altogether because I was trying to process grief and also because I thought, well, what's the use of keeping going with this book when my mother is not around to see it get published? And then I started up writing again at the request of my uh, thesis advisor. And then I stopped writing again about the eight-year mark because, and keep in mind, I am working to pay my bills at the same time. I am still running my ad agency while I'm going through all of these drafts. So uh, the other thing was uh, in at the eight-year mark, I finally got my editorial letters back from my developmental editors. And I got so frustrated that they still wanted me to make changes after all those years that I'd been working on it, that I stopped writing again because I was so frustrated. And sometimes you just have to step away because then when you go back to the work, it's fresh. You read everything you've written and you can actually appreciate how much you have added to the story, how much it has improved since your very first draft. So it's okay to take time away from it. Don't be in in a hurry. Why is everybody in a hurry to do everything all the time? It's not important to be in a hurry. It's important to put out the best work you can possibly put out. 100%. And that's something that Ruth Aziki and I had a conversation with, uh, you know, a little while ago, and she was she was saying the exact same thing. And it's so difficult to listen to that, because it's one thing to go, that makes sense. And it's a totally different thing to be like, yeah, but I want to I already be there. So yeah, amazing. Two more things. And I think that we already spoke about this one a little bit. And that is that you don't have to write every day. I know that everybody always says you need a writing practice. I think that's for people who need more structure in their lives, or they already have, let's say, work and then children and dinner and all of those things that they have to do. They are going to require so many hours out of their day. So they do have to structure and maybe they're only going to write from seven to nine in the morning. Maybe they're only going to write from one to three in the morning. Uh, Whatever it is, that is something that they may need to structure into their day. I don't operate well under structure. I never have. I don't like having to do the same thing day after day after day in the same order. I am very much a, like a creative type. And, you know, I will write some days. I don't write most days. I just work things through in my head. I am somebody who um, visualizes all the scenes in my head. So I work on those and work on those and work on those until I think, hey, I think I, I think I finally got it. I think I, I think that scene is finally working. So I am going to go ahead and put that down on the computer. So I don't actually write things down until I have stuff worked out in my head. I make little notes. I do a lot of research and make a lot of notes on research. And that research will inform me when I start writing. I also do research as I'm writing because I realize, hey, I don't know the answer to that question. I don't know what book this character should be reading in this time period. What are the books that somebody would have been reading? What somebody like my character would have been reading in that time period? I have to stop. I have to go do research. And then uh, I can incorporate some of that research back in. But um, there is no one way to write a book. And I want everybody to know that, you know, they don't have to beat themselves up if they didn't journal today, if they didn't write for the two hours today, don't beat yourself up. Because look, it's already hard enough to write a novel without putting all that pressure on yourself about why you didn't do something today. Be good to yourself. Please be good to yourself. I absolutely love that. Okay, the last piece of advice. Yes. And that is you have to be able to talk about your book in a way that you probably are not used to talking about 
yourself. You have to know the story behind the story. And this is very important for selling your work. Selling is not a bad word. I know a writer, a writers tend to think that selling and marketing are bad words, that they are, have nothing to do with the creative process, but that is horse pucky. Uh, everything has to do with the creative process. And that means that you constantly have to ask yourself these questions. Why am I writing this story? What, why am I the person to write this story? Why me? And then thirdly, why at this time in my life am I writing this story? I think this is so critical for people to ask themselves and then to write out the answers and then to actually practice giving the answers in front of a mirror in front of a, um, an iPhone with a video camera so that you can practice, feel confident about why you wrote what you wrote and what, it, what was so important to you about it. I, I had no idea that at the time I wrote The Henna Artist, the fact that I used my mother as my protagonist and uh, tried to imagine this other life for her, that that would become the story behind the story. And it was very appealing to my editors, my agent, my publisher, everybody. It was something that I did from my heart. It's a passion project for me. I wanted my mother to live forever because in, in the minds of people, because I just think that she was such a tremendous influence on my life and helped me live an amazing life. Uh, and so I just wanted to thank her. And I had no idea that that would resonate with so many readers around the world. So you need to figure out what is your story behind the story. Don't just write a story because everybody else is writing a story. Like don't write some romance because you think, oh, you know, everybody else loves romances or everybody loves mysteries. I'm going to write a mystery and I love mysteries too. There's a reason why you're writing the particular mystery or the particular romance or the particular memoir that you're writing today. And you need to articulate that to yourself before you can start articulating articulating it to other people. 100%. And, and just for our listeners, you know, I speak to tons of book clubs every single week, and I have been speaking to book clubs for the last four years. And whether I'm discussing my debut novel or my second novel, I would say that 90% of the questions are about my life, who I am as a person, my experience of growing up in South Africa that shaped my writing of the novels, and only 10% is ever about the plot or my characters, etc. So read Readers fall in love as much with the writer as they do the story, and they are fascinated by that kind of thing. So if you think that you are going to write a book and then just get to talk about the book to people, that is not the case. I'm sure you found the same, Alka. I did. And I think, it. Uh, you know, if you're a writer, place yourself in the position of the reader whom you once were. Most of us writers have been readers our whole lives. Put yourself in that position and think about after you finished a book, how much you thought about why the writer must have written what they wrote and how they were inspired by this character or another character. How did they build this world that you're reading about that you're so fascinated by? Those are the questions that you're going to need to answer in order to sell your work, in order to just let people know that this mattered to you. You know, this is so important about your work. Your work has to matter to you first before it can matter to other people. Right, Bianca? Couldn't say it better. Our time is up, Alka. I don't know how this happened. So firstly, for our listeners, I have got a huge author crush on Alka now. Huge, huge author crush. <laughs> and secondly, I think we're now going to change the podcast name to The Horse Pucky No One Tells You About Writing. <laughs> It'll, it'll certainly mean I don't have to put hashes and stars in, in the title when I'm trying to load it as a page on Facebook. So there's that. Alka, 
I can't thank you enough for taking the time to share this with us. What an amazing, inspiring interview. And I hope we get to have you on, on the show again. We wish you much success as the third novel comes out in, in the trilogy. We all look forward to that. And the Netflix series. So the next time I am with you, I can tell you all about the development of the series, which is another thing I am learning and which all of you, I hope, will learn someday as well. Amazing. We look forward to picking your brain about that. Thank you so much, Alka. We appreciate it. Before we close off today's show, Carly, Cece and myself would just like to take a moment to thank you for your amazing support over the past year. When we started this podcast just over a year ago, we had no idea how many amazing followers we would have, how many downloads we would have. We're now over the 300,000 downloads mark and it's all because of you, our amazing listeners. We know that this has been a really challenging year for all of you. It's so difficult to create, to be creative when you're anxious and when you're stressed. So please know that every single word that you've gotten down on the page has been a victory. We've been honored to be a part of your writing journey this year and we look forward to being a part of it again next year. We wish you a very, very happy new year and look forward to seeing you on the other side. And that's it for today's episode. If you have any questions about writing or publishing, please email me at theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com and I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Great news! The beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A Agent.
I hope to see you there. Great news! The Beta Reader Matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there.